lead differently? Millennials are calling us to lead differently. What does it look like for those of us who are older to kind of hand over the reins? I mean, there's just a lot of mm. conversation with um, a lot of variables all kind of clashing at once in our culture that's asking us and requiring us to lead differently. So I'm so excited for you to share what you are talking about. So what I would love for you to do, some of the people listening may not have heard my first interview that I did with you through Independent, um, their spouse wellness uh, summit, where we talked a lot about your experience as an Air Force pilot. So why don't you start off by sharing a little bit of your story and how you went from being in the Royal Air Force to doing what you're doing today? Certainly. Thank you for that wonderful intro, uh, Corey. So, good heavens, I'm old. I've had so many different careers and uh, uh, experiences. But, hey, it started when I joined the Royal Air Force um, uh, when I was about 20 years old. And I, I joined, as you point out, as a pilot. And I spent 25 years in the Royal Air Force and uh, climbed up the ranks, uh, which was great, um, and led people in different challenging situations. So I flew large aircraft, passenger jets and air refueling airplanes that give gas away to uh, fighter jets. And during my time flying, I had many emergencies on a flight deck where, you know, that's a leadership moment if there ever was one. I've led people during the uh, 2003 Iraq war, um, in fact, 20 years ago almost to the day, which was... Um, yeah, pivotal time in in my leadership journey, um, and also in the Air Force, I, I led multi billion dollar procurement programs, twenty billion dollar procurement programs. I negotiated with the U.S. State Department, which was fun, and uh, actually on behalf of NATO way back when with Russia, um, you know, which is a long time ago. But all these experiences. Um, after 25 years in the Air Force, I thought there's more I can do. So I left, and um, long story short, I did some work for about eight years with a fellow called Simon Sinek and uh, took his message around the world and also co-authored with Simon and David Mead, Find Your Why. So that's how many people heard my name. But then after about eight years, I thought there's more I could do. So I, um, I stepped away from Simon did a lot of thinking, which resulted in the book you kindly mentioned, Leading from the Jump Seat, uh, how to create extraordinary opportunities by handing over control. And it drew on all the experiences I've had with business, uh, working, I think, now in 94 countries, 95 countries, and uh, put it in a way in this book, which I, I hope will resonate with many people uh, and it seems to be whether you're the CEO of a company or a leader of a team or actually a parent mm -hmm. bringing up kids because I truly believe as a father myself of two grown-up kids that being a parent is one of the largest leadership challenges most of us will face. And everything about jump seat leadership um, speaks directly to parenting, actually. And quite a few of the stories in my book illustrating these points are drawn from some of the um, interesting times I've had with my kids. So that's how I got to where I am now. And I'd just like to pick up on a point that uh, you, you mentioned about um, the, the generations of people coming through now. I'm delighted to say that everyone in my team is actually from the generations you mentioned. So uh, that's a really fun ride working with, with them and helping lift them up and bring what they have to the table. It's, uh, it's a delight, frankly. 
Well, I think, like you said, this is going to resonate for everyone. I have um, teenagers. I just um, somewhat, I guess, launched one into college this past year and and still have another one at home. And so this resonates, I think, for all of us in different ways. And I, I think that's what's powerful about when we get into how do we grow as a leader um, it really comes down to getting the right mentoring and listening to the wisdom of others who've gone before us. Um, and nobody needs to reinvent the wheel. And I think that's mm. a lot of what you're doing is sharing the wisdom of all of these years of experience, whether it's parenting or in the workforce or in business or as an entrepreneur and being and, and being able to say, here's what I've curated over time, mm. what I've seen across the board, and let me share that wisdom with you. And I think that if we can pause and listen, we can learn so much from your wisdom. You know, when I, I look through um, what you're trying to teach, and we're going to kind of break down um, some of the high-level concepts that you talk about in your mm. book, um, it really is about the crux of control, right? I think it's really mm. about what is it that we feel like, why is it that we feel like we need to control things? What is it like to let go of that control? What does that mean? And you're right. I think parents for sure struggle with that because I think we're taught to keep these little children, these little people alive and we have lots of control. And then the older they get, the more it's almost a releasing process. And that's really, really, really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. In fact, I had a conversation with a mom just the other day whose son is in college, and that's exactly what this conversation was about, was her even saying, um, I need to take a look at that. Like, I need to take a look at how do I start letting go of control? Because if I don't, um, it's not going to necessarily go the way that I want it to go or, wh- or the way that my child mm-hmm. wants it to go either. So what do you feel like? Um, obviously control was a huge factor in writing this and thinking this through. What is it about control, um, that you found? Well, (laughs) I mean, everything we do in life that's deeply important to us, everything is driven by one of two things. It's either driven by fear or it's driven by love. And that applies whether we're trying to bring up our kids as best we can, or if we're leading a multi-million dollar business or leading people in a war type environment. It boils down to that, fear and love. And fear is something which is triggered inside of us. It can't be helped. It's triggered when our life is on danger, in danger, right? But it's also figured when we sense our status our reputation or our livelihood is under threat too. And the trouble is when it's triggered by those three last things, state of reputation or livelihood, fear can show up in ways that that isn't great. You know, we start to close down how we look at the world. We see the the world's a place of scarcity rather than possibility. Um, We start thinking about ourselves more. Ego comes to play. You know, and if uh, there's any parents out there who've had a teenage son or daughter not doing what you're asking them to do, you know, ego rises up inside of you. Oh, I'm the parent, I'm the boss. Yeah. Um, so ego comes into play big time. Um, and ultimately, we start making choices that um, don't serve us or others well. But the good news is we've always got a choice. And that choice is to source ourselves from a place of love. And 
when we source ourselves from a place of love, we start seeing the world as a place of opportunity rather than scarcity. We start thinking about others instead of just ourselves. And we start leading in a way that I refer to as humble confidence. And that's about being resolute on where we're heading, ready to take decisions, but having the humility to, to listen and engage with others. Because whether we're talking about a mega company or in the military or as a parent, the solution to the challenges we're facing, they come from our people. I refer to it as the, the collective genius. So, you know, if you're having a, a, a challenge with your, <clears throat> excuse me, your son or daughter, <clears throat> they're part of the solution uh, if you want that to be sustainable. So, you know, coming back to the notion of jump seat leadership might be helpful, Corey, do you think, if I just explain where that term comes from? Absolutely. Because it blends into everything we're talking here. Um, so, and it, it goes back to when I was in the Air Force and I was a senior officer and um, I had the role of checking some of my pilots um, one, when they'd gone from being a first officer, a co-pilot, to a captain of a large passenger jet. We flew jets that carried about 140 people, the sort of thing that you'd go on vacation in. And there was this young chap called Callum who had just completed six months of training to become a captain. And the final part of the, uh, the training was for me to check him, act as his co-pilot, his first officer, as he flew us with a full load of passengers from the UK over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Fran. And uh, San Fran is an exceptionally busy airport. And I was monitoring Callum as he flew in, and he did a great job. And it was with great pride, actually, that I was able to say to him afterwards, look, you've done a wonderful job. You're fully signed up now. I'm certifying you as a captain. We're stopping here tonight, but in the morning, you've got a full load of packs to passengers to take over to Washington. I'll be down the back with the rest of them. You'll have a regular first officer co-pilot with you. Great job. And it was a wonderful moment, you know, because he'd worked hard for this. Following morning, we came in and he was doing his, his pre-flight planning as us pilots do. And he came up to me, he said, excuse me, sir. He said, because remember, I was his senior senior officer. He said, excuse me. He said, um, it's very busy out of here during the rush hour. He said, can you come and sit on the jump seat to act as an extra pair of eyes as we start up and taxi out, you know? I thought, well, I said, yes, of course, Captain. I thought, what a courageous thing to do, right? Because remember, he'd had someone like me on his shoulder for six months. I just signed him off. And you think he'd be glad to see the back of the likes of me. But no, he's connected to a higher purpose, which was the safety of the aircraft. And so I sat on that jump seat. The jump seat is immediately behind the two pilot seats. You can reach out and touch them, you know. It's usually empty, but a qualified crew member can sit there. And so I strapped myself in. You get a great view out the front. Um, and we tacked it out. And Callum was all over it. It was on top of his game, you know, as I knew it would be. And we had clearance for takeoff. We thundered down the runway. And it was all going well until about a few seconds after we'd actually lifted off from the ground. We're very close to the ground. And suddenly we had an emergency. And there was Callum wrestling with the controls, trying to keep us climbing and away from the ground. And I knew that in that moment, what I chose to do in the next two seconds, maybe less, would fundamentally affect whether I and everyone else on board would survive or not. And what I realized was that, you know, in that moment, I didn't need to be a great leader 
and take over control. I needed to be a great follower. I needed Callum to feel that I had his back, to feel that I had confidence in him to sort this situation out. And you know what? Why wouldn't I? I'd signed him off the day before, certifying him to fly this aircraft with passengers anywhere in the world. So for me not to have had faith in him in that moment would have been completely wrong. So I just sat there with my hands in my lap, perfectly calm, and allowed him to do what he needed to do. And, you know, I'm talking to you now, so obviously it worked out okay. But, you know, this is the, the thing about jump seat leadership. At some point in our lives, whether we're the CEO of a company, where, whether we're leading a team or we're a parent, at some stage we're going to retire, we're going to change teams, or our kids are going to grow up, leave home, and start to lead their own lives. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Jump seat leadership is about embracing that inevitability and being focused on creating the environment where we lift people up and equip them so when the time is right, they are able to take the lead and importantly, carry forward those things that are deeply important to us. Right? And again, it applies in every domain of life where you're dealing with other people. So, Peter, I have a question because, you know, in hindsight, knowing that everything worked out in that story, I think it's really easy to hear that story and go, wow, Peter, you did the right thing, right? Like that that worked out well for you, <laughs> right? But I think yeah. the struggle in the moment, which I'm sure you felt as well, right? Like when you're in the midst of that moment, there is a real struggle of did I teach him this though? Or has he gone through this kind of emergency yet? And maybe he's not, maybe I qualified him on all those other things, but now this is the first emergency and he's not been in an emergency before. I have like, this is a split second kind of millions of thoughts going through your mind at once. And the temptation to take back control or to lead, um, or, or we could actually even, um, convince ourselves that, you know, I'm teaching you in this moment because you've not yeah. had this moment yet. This moment's different, yeah. right? So I need to get involved. And what I heard you do is that you took a step back and, and valued that this experience, him making those decisions through this experience was the best way for him to learn instead of you showing him or modeling or taking over. Oh. But it's such a, I mean, an intense moment that I think we go through, whether you're parenting or whether you're in a work setting that we convince ourselves that we're actually helping when we're actually, we might be actually hurting or sabotaging something. Well, you make a great point, Corey. And, and you know, that situation, it, it didn't just happen. Um, it was built on a foundation. Um, and he'd had the training. We got the relationship. We had um, a shared commitment to the safety of everybody on board. Um, and also, we had a sense of belonging. And what you just described applies very much as a parent too, doesn't it? You know, it's very easy to say, look, I, I've given all the guidance I can, but has my son or daughter, have they, they haven't experienced this before, so I've got to step in. You know, just going on that parent thing, because I, I think it's a great example. It was about 10 months ago, my daughter, Louise, who um, uh, she's 32. Uh, will be 32 this year. 
And um, I was driving her to the airport. And she's done some remarkable things in her life, but this was the start of a new chapter. She um, was going with a, a partner. Uh, we're meeting at the airport and flying over to Indonesia. Uh, then spent several months cycling the whole length of Indonesia through Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, then on to New Zealand and Australia. And they're still out there now. And as we were driving there, Louise turned to me and she, she said, you're okay, you're, you're a bit quiet. I said, well, yeah, I suppose I am. I said, um, I suppose it's because I'm feeling a bit redundant now as a dad. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, here you are, you're going off. The, it's not the first adventure. You know, she's climbed mountains in the, the shadow of Everest. She's done all sorts of things. But I said, here you are. I feel you don't actually need me anymore. Mm. And she came straight back. She said, well, let me tell you something, she said. Every day when I'm facing challenges, a day doesn't go by without me thinking, what would my dad do wow. or my mum do? Closely followed by, and here's the key, closely followed by, I've got this. But she said, the only reason I can say to myself, I've got this, is because you've always had my back. And I know that you're there should I need. And that gives me the, the courage to step into the unknown, to push the boundaries of my experience in life and go on and do everything that I'm doing. And so I think this is the, the key. You know, I can't be with her now on all of these mountaineering and scuba diving, all sorts of adventurous stuff she's doing. But what I think we've managed to do, and it's my wife as well, is create an environment where we've shared with her what are the really important things? What's deeply important to us as a family? Helped her discover, I refer to it in the book, her own non-negotiables. Those are those feelings that are deeply inside of us that are unshakable. You know, they go beyond values. You know, the values can change depending on the circumstances I've discovered, but these go deeper than that. And when you put your non-negotiables into words, they become stands. It's what you stand for. Not against, it's what you stand for. And we've helped her discover those for herself, combine them with what we stand for as a family. And that gives her the context, the environment, and equips her to make the right decisions, make the right choices, you know, because those stands, they act as a reservoir of energy to help us move forward into the unknown when there isn't a roadmap, when we haven't been there before. And it applies as much to the example of my daughter and being a parent as it does when I'm working with companies facing major change or um, uh, the unknown, like we all had the, the pandemic the other year, you know, where nobody knew what to do. Jump seat leadership is about how do you create that environment where people feel confident leading themselves and others when they don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We get very comfortable leading when we do know the answer, but this is about removing that constriction and become comfortable leading when you don't know the answer. And I think that's what we can offer to our kids, to our team, uh, teams in business, to our communities, lifting them up so as they feel confident and they are equipped to lead in those situations where they don't know the answer. 
You know, before we go into what I would call your pillars behind jump jump seat leadership, um, you mentioned humble confidence and belonging already. Mm-hmm. Um, before we unpack that a little bit more, I don't want to skip over something that you just said. And it's been one of the things that has been rolling around in my mind since the last time you and I talked. And this was the separation of values and a stand. I'd love for mm. you to just unpack that a little bit more because that might be new to someone listening. I know for me personally, over the last several years, I really was counseling people and teaching people from a values place because I really have found um, some of the, our biggest disagreements, our biggest challenges relationally, um, even conflict in marriage, even with our kids, mm-hmm. it always simmers down to a difference in values of what, how different people prioritize different values and how do we align values with people. I've been very value centric, if you will. And when yeah. you introduce this concept of the difference between values and a stand, that really made me start to think about changing my language. So I would love for you to unpack, like, what is the difference between valuing something and and your stand? Mm. Well, first of all, everything that I, I talk about does not undermine or displace uh, anything that uh, yourself or anyone else is doing around values. It's hugely valuable work. <laughs> Where I go with with stands is maybe taking a slightly different perspective on it. And the the reason for that is that it enables us to have different conversations. Mm -hmm. And when we have different conversations, we can get different results, right? So values for me, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners will have come across this. You know, let's take a a classic example of of companies who've got values, but then they uh, decide they're going to go for a – a new strategy, and they come up with different values. Wait, what? You know, mm-hmm. how does that work? Um, if you said for the past ten years you really valued um, equality in your organisation or, or respect for people, but now that's no longer in your list of values, how does that work? Um, where I come from with the the conversation around stands is this: the difference between a stand and position. Right, a stand is for something; a position is against. A position, we hear a lot of positional language if we open up the newspapers or, or watch TV. Um, people take up positions against others. And that's, that's fine. It's what we tend to do. But the, the weakness of position is that it can only exist with a counterposition. Okay? Mm-hmm. As soon as that counterposition goes away, your position dissolves. Um, a stand, on the other hand, is about what you believe. And that's unshakable. So a little example, there's a a very narrow street by where I live. And when two cars meet nose to nose, they have to stop because there's only enough room for one to pass at a time. And often you get two cars, they meet bumper to bumper, fender to fender, and they just stop. And each will take up a position against the other. And what that looks like is one driver will say, you were going too fast. You need to reverse up to the passing place. And the other guy will be saying, no, 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 my journey is more important than yours, right? And the thing with the position, you get more and more entrenched and you go nowhere. But then occasionally you have two cars meeting in the same circumstances, but one of them has got a stand. And that stand is to be courteous to others on the road. And immediately she reverses up to the passing place. The other person, their stand, well, it just dissolves. Because, sorry, their position just dissolves because there is an account position. But the person with the stand for being courteous on the road gets stronger. It's mm. not dependent on anyone or anything else. So... Where do stands come from? Stands come from what I call those non-negotiables, those 
deeply held feelings inside of us where um, we choose to turn left when everyone around us is screaming, carry straight on or turn right, you know? So one quick example for me, I chose to leave university halfway through my double degree course. And people thought I was mad. Why did you do that? Totally illogical. I just had to do it. And the reason why it was 1982 and Argentina had just invaded the Falkland Islands. The Falkland Islands are tiny little islands in the South Atlantic, which are a British dependency. But Argentina laid claim to them. Um, now, at the time, I didn't understand the politics, but I was so incensed that someone was trying to impose their will on others because the, the islanders considered themselves to be British. I was so incensed that I left university to join the Royal Air Force because I thought, I want to be part of a team, an organization that can help people who can't help themselves in similar situations in the future. And that feeling was so strong inside me, I just had to do it. I, I found it difficult to describe or explain to people. I just had to do it. On reflection, how I express that feeling now is in a stand, what I stand for, and that stand is for mutual respect. Mm -hmm. And that will never waver. So in situations today where um, I see someone not being respected, where mutual respect doesn't exist, then that will fire me up to take action, to step into that unknown, uh, even if I don't know what the outcome's going to be. You know, so, so that's a stand. I mean, another example, because this is deeply important. I had a phone call a couple of years ago uh, from my wife, Claire. Turns out she'd been in a road accident just two, two miles down the road. I was on the business call at the time. I dropped everything. I got into my car to go to her. And I think anyone with family would act the same, right? You know, you drop everything. Why? Because you're a stand for your family. It's one of those non-negotiables. But here's the interesting thing. When you focus in on the energy inside of you that's released, um, it's so powerful. You know, there is nothing on this planet which would have stopped me leaving the house and going to my wife's assistance. I didn't know what I'd find when I get there. I didn't know what I would do when I got there, but nothing would have stopped me from moving forward. And so when we, and there's a process that I describe in the book, but when you can identify all these non-negotiables that you have through the experiences that you have in life, where you've chosen to turn left instead of right, or you just had to do something, when you can put those into words and they become stands for something, that, that's yours. That's your reservoir of energy to help you move forward when there isn't that roadmap, when you don't know the answer. They act as that guide. And that's the reason that, that stands are so valuable. Now, you, you can talk about values uh, which will lead on from those stands, but stands will never change. Whereas in life, we see that sometimes things that people call values do change depending on the circumstances. So powerful to shift our language just a little bit to be able to define for ourselves, like, what are those stands? Um, that's something I'm seeing throughout our force right now, especially after two decades of, of war and global conflict. Um, we're in a, in a bit of a um, odd season of trying to grapple with what everybody just went through. Mm. And, and I really honestly believe people are 
um, developing or coming back to those stands, those things that are really important to them and reevaluating some yeah. things. We're seeing a mass exodus of our kind of middle management um, group of leaders because I think that some of them are coming back to those stands for family, coming back to their stands for personal health and what yeah. they stand for versus maybe what they've seen. And so people are beginning to make some very big choices and I also think the youngest generation has watched all of that unfold and they're coming into the workforce with some stands already kind of established of what they want to see and what they expect mm. from leaders or expect from businesses. So I think it's just perfect terminology for what we're seeing everywhere. Well, um, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think the, the notion of the distinction in language around stands and positions links to love and fear. A yeah. position is often held from a place of fear, stopping something from happening. Stands, though, are also sourced from a place of love for something. Yeah. And love is the most powerful generative force in the universe. You know, um, there is a conflict going on in Ukraine at the moment. And the, uh, the Russian leader is sourced from, from fear, mm-hmm. from what I can see. The Ukrainian leader is sourced from a place of love for his country, for his people. Um, (laughs) You will see people rushing from trying to get away from war zones, whether that's Ukraine or Syria or a number of places. What are the images that we see on TV often? It's apparent more often or not than, well, it's the mother clinging a child, their child. They're trying to get away from the carnage and they're stepping completely into the, into the unknown. But they overcome that fear because the love they have for their child and the future they want their son or daughter to have. Love is really powerful. When we source our place from a, ourselves from, uh, from that reservoir of stands, we source ourselves from a place of love. Um, and it, it, it truly does give us the courage to move forward into the unknown. So this is super powerful and I see exactly where you're going and I see exactly how powerful this is, but I would love for us to unpack, um, these three areas that you talk obviously more in the book. Again, his book is leading from the jump seat. Um, but you know, it's, it's easy to apply that to family, to our children, to our marriage, mm. right? Um, I think that there's some out there right now, whether you're in military leadership or you're in business leadership that is already wrestling, listening to our conversation with how do I, how do I behave differently or lead differently from a place of love? And what does that look like in the business space or in the military leadership space? Sure. I know, um, especially in the military, leadership is is not necessarily, although we're changing the conversation, it was not traditionally a place for what they called soft skills, which is empathy and compassion and love. And, mm. and so now we're having these conversations of where do those come into play in our leadership? Um, we definitely need a whole lot more of it. And so you talk about commitment, humble confidence, and belonging as being key to this leading from the jump seat. So yeah. would you like to unpack a little bit about the those three, sure. um, and how they they help leaders lead better. Uh, and you know, I'll, I'll explain about them. And 
through a, a story which was the military experience I had of leading people during the 2003 Iraq war because it's really important, I, I feel, for people to realize that so-called soft skills, actually, they're, they're the real hard skills Yeah. Um, because it's what brings people together. So the three practices of jump seat leadership, uh, commitment, humble confidence, belonging. Commitment is um, <laughs> Commitment is when you put your stands into action. Okay, and all a commitment is, all it is, is a promise you make to yourself. The promise you make to yourself to follow through, you know, in very simple terms, um, I could say I, I made a commitment to you, Corey, to come on this call. But unless I made that promise to myself to actually be here on time, then it's meaningless. So in its simplest form of commitment is something that you, you promise to yourself that you're going to follow through on. And I spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about stands and commitment, the practice of commitment, because if you want to lead people into the unknown, whether it's a parent trying to raise your kids or in business or in, in conflict, in war, then you need to be very clear what you're committed to, the promise you made to yourself. Now, um, this time 20 years ago, I was in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert with three squadrons from the Royal Air Force. Uh, elements of three squadrons, and we were tasked with flying air refueling missions over Iraq to refuel um, U.S. and British fighter jets. And um, there was a high probability we were going to get shot down, very high probability. We were totally undefended, um, unarmed. And I remember gathering my people around me at the time um, after we'd had a, a photograph, because that's what you do. I said, look, uh, there's a lot of noise going on. There's demonstrations in Washington, New York, Paris, London against the wall. And there was a lot of noise. And when you're going to put your life on the line, as a leader, I, I had to make it clear and focus my people. So I turned to my aircraft engineers and said, guys, um, your job is to keep these 40-year-old airplanes running. We don't have enough spares or resources, but you've got to keep them running so they're available for the, the crews to fly. I then turned to the crews and said, guys, your job is to fly every mission that we're given and refuel those fighter jets. Because unless you refuel those fighter jets, our British, American, Australian um, compatriots on the ground won't get their air cover mm. and they're going to die. Simple as. And that then turned into a shared commitment that no, we've got to launch these missions. And over four and a half months, we were tasked with 479 missions and we flew 400 and 79 missions, you know? And, and that came from that shared commitment, but also I had a commitment that I wanted to take all my people home safe. That's where I sourced myself from. That was my stand. And indeed, I took all my people home safe. So it starts with commitment. That's the foundation based on those stands as well. That's the foundation. But then when you have that, it opens you up to um, be able to practice humble confidence. And humble confidence is that antidote to ego. It's the the opportunity to lead powerfully when you don't know the answer, all right? And humble confidence is where you tap into the collective genius of your people. So what that looked like in the Gulf War, the Iraq War, was we didn't have a lot of things that we needed. And so I was able to put my hand up. I said, look, people, to my 200 folks, um, I don't know the answers to all the problems we've got. I don't. You know, we don't have enough resources, don't have enough equipment. We don't even have enough space to do our planning for the missions but we've got to figure it out. 
because we've got to launch those missions. How are we going to do it? And I tapped into that collective genius and creating that space where people were f- felt able to come forward, parts of the solution, we did indeed figure it out. And they came up with ideas that I would never have thought about. But that was because I was willing to lead with humble confidence. You know, many of us want to be the one with our hand up saying, I- I've got the answer and tell you what to do. But we then become the constriction in the pipe because we can only advance as quickly as our own knowledge allows. Yes. But if we're willing to take that step back and have that humility, and the courage to have that humility comes from our commitment, our stands, then we open up and tap into this collective genius and everyone becomes part of the solution. But that will only happen if we've got the third pillar or practice in place, which is the the sense of belonging. But before I go on and, and talk about belonging, I'm conscious that you might want to pick up on some of the things I've already said, Corey. So I, have, dive back I do have in. a question. I can't believe you picked up that. I was like, oh, I want to ask a question. Um, no, I actually have a question about this humble confidence for just a second. Yeah. Um, okay, so you were in a place where you were humbled, if you will, in that moment with humble resources, right? Um, and I, I imagine people listening, especially if they're part of the millennial generation, collaboration is something that they're pretty good at. Like they really want to dialogue and have mm-hmm. collaboration. Um, and so I, I, I'm not even sure what my question is, but I'm thinking about these different generations. And so you have one generation that might be more open to collaboration and you have, I think the older generation that struggles maybe with it a little bit more because I mean, to be frank, Gen X was a very independent generation and we keep our head down and get the work done independently. And so collaboration was not really something, unless we were forced into a group project, which we probably hated, right? That it was a little bit harder. And I think the military does definitely a good job of forcing you into teams and into groups where you do have to work together. And, you know, everybody has a different job. I guess my my question here is maybe what are the struggles that you're seeing? Um or maybe they're not struggles. Maybe you're see. What are you seeing when you are working with these different organizations that are, let's say, um, led by the millennial generation? Do they tend mm. to collaborate more? Is it easier for them to do that? Like, where do you see humble confidence playing out as you work with different generations? I guess is the question. Well, um, several thoughts on, on that, Corey. It's a great, great question. First of all, I don't think it's a challenge. <sighs> Uh, just faced by millennials and the, the more recent generations. You know, when we think about it, our our society drives us to be the one with the answer. Think back yeah. to when you and I at high school, you know, when the teacher asked a question, it felt good to put your hand up with the answer, right? And you got rewarded yeah. for that. Um, and you probably then focused on the, the subjects where you got the most right answers. Yeah. So you went to college or university, perhaps, to to study more, to be one with more of the right answers. And then maybe you get hired by a company for your skill in that area, your ability to know the answers. And you do well. And so you're rewarded with promotion. And suddenly, you're leading people or a team of people where if you've got to be the one with the answer all the time, you're going to limit your progress. Yeah. But my point is, we have not traditionally equipped our people well to feel comfortable 
leading when they don't know the answer. And when I work with companies, leadership teams, where I say, look, you don't have to know the answer. You can say the weight falling off them quite a bit. There's a few companies I'm working with at the moment in the States where um, the, the turmoil in the job market through COVID, where a lot of people were furloughed or let go, now a lot of companies are having to ramp up again. And so they're getting a lot of um, new managers who don't really know, they don't have the, the, uh, the, the background or, or necessarily the, the skills or experience. And they're in this position of not knowing the answer, but they're trying to you know, bluff their way through um, because they feel the need to know the answer. It's not going to help your organization or your team um, because we always know when someone above us is, is bluffing. Uh, you know, it's, it's a natural human ability we have. So I, I think, first of all, there's work that could be done um, in, in schools across the world to have people feel more comfortable um, not knowing the answer but being part of the solution uh, in a small way, even if, if it means coming up with ideas which you know, don't fit. But that's okay. You know? So that's the first thing. I think as well um, in the workplace, um, having people step forward um, to be part of the solution to the challenges you're facing. It's very much dependent on that, that leader, and that's where the humble confidence comes in. Um, you know, I, I've been to a few meetings with my team who are in their, their early, very early 30s and meeting clients for the first time. Oh, I don't say much. Um, I let them do the majority of the talking because I know that they can figure it out. I chip in when necessary just to you know, lift them up or uh, create another space into which they can step the conversation. But it's, it's down to my choice. And so anyone out there who's leading um, a team or a parent leading your kids growing up, you know, it's your choice. It's in your power. It's in your power to suppress that ego mm -hmm. and to say, look, I don't know the answer, but here's our shared commitment. Let's figure it out. Um, uh, and lead with that, that humble confidence. I love that. Everybody needs to rewind and write that down and say that <laughs> as a parent almost daily. Um, seriously, rewind and write it down. Um, you know, before you go to belonging, um, one of the quotes that came to my mind is, um, I was listening, I'm, I'm a huge learner. I love to just devour information and I love masterclass. Um, is one of those platforms that you can learn about any number of things. And Daniel Pink is a businessman yeah. and on Masterclass, he talks about power of persuasion and all this. And one of the things that he said that I think fits really well with what you're saying was he was talking about um, to, with all the change and shifts of information and knowledge being at our fingertips, um, what it means to be an expert has changed. It used to be that if you hold all of the knowledge, then you know, think about your teachers, thinking about you know, who, you know, who is the expert. It's usually the person that holds the knowledge, or at least it used to be, but now knowledge is at your fingertips. And so he was saying, now what it means to be an expert is can you curate the information that's out there? Can you be someone that makes sense of the information that's out there? And what I hear you also saying is that this humble confidence perspective is can you trust those that that are that you are leading to be efficient to gather information think for themselves come up with ideas share their thoughts and that as a leader 
what I think sets us apart doesn't have to be knowledge because we all have access to information now. But I think what sets us apart is our wisdom, our wisdom mm-hmm. to be able to, in your words, humble confidence, to be able to push that ego down and to listen to the other, listen to everyone and help make sense of all of that information together. Yep. And then as a leader, how do you help everyone move forward? Whether it is leading from the jump seat and saying, great, now you make that decision. Mm-hmm. I trust you. Or if you're tasked to be that leader, being able to move forward with that decision, knowing that you have had um, the collaboration involved in making that yeah. decision. Well, uh, there's some great points you make there, Corey, I'd like to pick up on. First of all, trust. Um, if you go back to, we go back to the story of Callum and the emergency out of San Francisco, we had deep relationship. You know, re- relationship is the foundation of everything we accomplish. If we increase, broaden, deepen relationship by a small amount, we'll accomplish more together, right? And our relationship, I knew him personally, I knew his family, I had um, deep relationship understanding with the training he had and the expectations on him as a captain. So that enabled us to accomplish more together, which linked directly to trust, right? But coming back to humble confidence um, and picking up on the, the Daniel Pink uh, point you made, leading when you don't know the answer, the practice of that, it switches from a focus on trying to figure out the answer to a focus on asking the important questions. Mm-hmm. That's the key. And I find it fascinating that we've got um, AI bots now, which have been hitting the headlines recently, that are very capable of curating content and bringing it together in a, a very human-type way. But it's hugely dependent on your ability to ask the important question of the, the system, the AI system. Yeah? And it's the same with human beings. If people want a fun watch after this, go and download Rent from Netflix or wherever Apollo 13. I use Apollo 13. Uh, I've licensed it from Universal Studios just in case they're listening. <laughs> but I use that in my workshops because Apollo 13 is a story back in 1970 when one of the Apollo spacecraft exploded on route to the moon. And it's a story of how uh, mission control led by the phenomenal Gene Krantz handled and led their way through the situation where no one knew the answer. And Gene Krantz, as depicted in this film, um, he's the epitome of a jump seat leader because he's focused not on knowing the answers himself, but asking the important questions so as his people can figure it out. Yeah. And that's where we need to, to focus um, in terms of humble confidence and uh, unlocking that potential of our people. We need to get over this thing of, got to know the answer, got to No, no. It's what are the important questions I've got to ask so as together with my people, we can learn our way through to the solution. So um, that, that's the, the, the massive focus for leading when you don't know the answer. I love it. I love it. You know, on your website, you talk about, um, when you talk about belonging, you, you had these statistics that I want to point out and maybe that will give you a great kind of launching place to talk about belonging. Um, you say Harvard business review surveyed about 1,789 to be specific full-time workers from a variety of industries and found that those companies with a strong sense of belonging show a 56% increase in job performance and a 50% decrease in turnover. 
Um, and then it goes on to say the data also showed that employees who feel as though they belong are 167% more likely to recommend their employer as a great place for work. Considering yeah. we are in a recruitment crisis, considering, um, you know, we are, what does it mean to, I mean, it's not just the military. What does it mean to, yeah. um, get Gen Z and millennials into the workplace and when they are evaluating really from the outside, whether or not they want to join your organization mm. or not, belonging is huge to culture. So unpack how important belonging is to jump seat leadership. It's the glue. That holds everything together, Corey. So um, those statistics that you quote, yeah, they're important, but let's make this really human. Mm-hmm. A basic human need that's built into us is to feel that we belong. It's a basic human need. We will seek it out. You know, it, it's what comes to mind. It, it's a huge sadness that um, many young people are caught up in um, drugs or other sorts of um, uh, abuse um, run by gangs or whatever. Why? Because they offer them a, a sense of belonging. You know, mm-hmm. that's the dark side of it. But on the light side of it, the good side of it, you know, belonging is so important in terms of individual and team performance. It's our job as as leaders to nurture that sense of belonging. You know, so. I'll give you an example. Um, going back to that Iraq war, you know, I worked very, very hard to nurture a sense of belonging, a joint sense of belonging. Uh, I had three different squadrons, three different identities, but I had to pull them together. Yeah. So how do we do this, to your point? Mm-hmm. We do it by showing that we care. And we show that we care by giving our time. Now, it doesn't need to be much time, you know. Uh, during the, uh, the, the time I was out for the Iraq conflict, the vast majority of my day, and we worked seven days a week, 24-7, um, and I was probably on the go about 18, 19 hours a day. But a lot of my time was finding the opportunity to go and sit with maybe one of the junior aircraft maintainers uh, who was on a, a coffee break. I'd sit down the floor with him with our back against the wall, you know, I just say, how's things? How's it going? How's things at home? Everything all right? You're managing? Um, I used to brief my engineers, the aircraft maintainers, twice a day because there were two shifts. Often I didn't have much to tell them because nothing had changed. But it was deeply important for them to feel that they were being kept informed and they knew that as soon as I knew something about the situation, they would know moments later, because I tell them, this all took my time, but it's invaluable. You know, the thing about time is that people have different perceptions of it, depending on where you're, you're looking, you know, the, the moments that are so fleeting for us that we immediately forget them can have a lasting impact on the other party. It's the one-to-one human exchanges which nurture belonging. Um, and, well, I'll give you an example which really hit me. When we flew back after four and a half months, I was absolutely exhausted. We landed the three large aircraft, everybody deplaned. We had all the press and TV and whatever. They eventually went. We were left just with our families to, um, to find our way home. And 
I had a little run around car for the uh, the airfield, and I had my two young children as they were then in the car with me. My wife Claire had taken our car home. I was about to drive off, and there was a knock on the window, and it was John, one of my um, aircraft maintainers, that had been out with me. And on one arm he had his wife, and on the other arm he had his newborn baby boy he had just met for the first time. I said, yes, John, what is it? He said, um, I just want to say, boss, he said, thanks for bringing us all home safe. Mm. Now, that was a fleeting moment that I was lucky enough to be on the receiving end of. John will probably not remember that. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So turning that back into a leadership moment or the way we go about nurturing a sense of belonging, it's it's finding the opportunity to, to spend time, one-to-one moments where people feel seen, heard, throwing those pebbles into the pond, as I put it, because when you throw a pebble in the pond, you, you create ripples, and they go far and wide. You don't know where they'll go, but they will create ripples. The more opportunity we can find to throw more pebbles in the pond through those fleeting human interactions we have with people, um, the more we'll generate that sense of belonging. And, you know, we've talked about these three practices. Um, It's not sequential. They go together. You know, it's built on a foundation of commitment that you've got to keep alive. It's led with humble confidence. And it's it's empowered by this sense of belonging. And we need to pay attention to all of them. Um, It's actually not difficult if we're sourcing ourselves from what we deeply believe in our stands if we're willing to lead with that humility and keep that ego in check, and if we pay attention to giving people our time so as they feel that we really care, and then they'll feel they belong. And when they feel they belong, they'll step up. They'll do, choose to do more. They'll choose to contribute. They'll choose to put their hand up when they think that they may have part of the solution to the challenge you're facing and won't be shot down if it's slightly off or, or isn't a good fit. Yeah. And this all applies to whether we're being a parent, running a massive multi-billion dollar company, or trying to lead people in battle. Peter, I could not have summarized that better. It's so beautiful and it's so needed right now more than ever when it's so much easier to busy ourselves with technology and efficiency and getting tasks done and you know, marking off our to-do sheet and going home at the end of the day and and forgetting that we're dealing with people and people's lives and relationships that we get the mm. honor to be leaders for these people in our lives. And some nowadays, depending on what your business is or what your job is, some of these relationships are fully digital. You and I are seeing each other through a video call, right? And so I think it's also very easy to feel distant and disconnected that way and forget that we're dealing with people in their lives. And so such an important message across the board. And I'm so thankful for your wisdom and that you're continuing to give it and they're sharing it and teaching and just reminding people to just bring the humanity back to what it is that you're doing. Absolutely. That's That's what it's about. Maybe the the last bit around the the being human piece, you know, it might be easy for people to think that I always got it right. I don't. I, I very rarely did all this stuff that you're hearing. I didn't realize it at the time during the Iraq war, for example, it's only on reflection that I, I can see what was happening. Um, the outcome was more by luck than judgment on my part, you know, and that's the thing. As you're 
working to be the best jump seat leader you can. Go easy on yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't get it right all the time, and that's okay. It's the intention and the trend which is important. If we're sourcing ourselves from a place of love rather than fear, over time we'll head in the right direction, even if we do trip occasionally and make a mistake. After all, we're only human. Obviously, you can find Leading from the Jump Seat um, on Amazon, um, probably anywhere you buy books. Is Can you share a little bit more about if people want to reach out to you? I know you're leading workshops as well. Uh, of course. Thank you. So people can find information on the website, Leading from the Jump, leadingfromthejumpseat.com. Um, the, the book's available everywhere in audio form and lots of other formats too. So yes, I, I am running workshops and programs mainly in the business world. Um, these days, there's a, a very exciting opportunity I'm developing with uh, a, a new leadership institute in the, the States. Um, more of that, I, I'm sure, in the future. So that's where my focus is at the moment. And um, uh, I'm working on more material, more um, books actually on how to put all of this that we've been talking about today into practice. So lots more to come. Um, and please reach out to me via the website if, uh, if you want to know more. I really believe that listening to those ahead of us, raising up that next generation and always being willing to learn, but also willing to, like Peter says, lead from the jump seat to think about those that are coming after you is just such a beautiful concept and one that makes us a stronger leader, a more influential leader, and also one that we can be proud of. I know that we're already over time, but just to point out a couple of things that stood out to me. Obviously, I love Peter's language around what the difference is between a value and a stand. And that is something that I have really taken and added as part of my vocabulary. When I feel like there's something that's really strong within me that either angers me or excites me, or I feel really serious about it, I ask myself, is this something that I'm valuing Um, this more than something else? Or is this a stand for me? Because there's a difference now I see between values, which are very important, and which of those things are a stand. I also loved his language about how we can disarm conflict by simply deciding whether or not we want to take a position on something or not. And that is also tied to what your values are versus what your stands are. I also love his language around humble confidence, the importance of belonging. That is something our community is needing now more than ever with our circles of community, our social circles, and some of our biggest traditions kind of disintegrating. It is time to return to that sense of belonging. How are you creating belonging opportunities with those that you are leading? How are you exhibiting humble confidence in your leadership? I hope you enjoyed the interview. There is more to come in this leadership series. I cannot wait to share with you some of the upcoming guests. So thank you for joining me and I will see you next time for the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast or leave a review so others can find it as well. Were you thinking of someone else who would benefit from hearing today's episode? You can be a life giver to them by simply sharing it with an encouraging note. If you'd like to connect with me or find out more about my work, you can visit www.coryweathers.com.